Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, and today is no exception. In fact, this week, this week I have a new book coming out. It's called Quantum Supremacy, How Quantum Computers Will Change Everything. So we're talking about a new revolutionary development in computers. We're talking about the next generation of supercomputers that'll put the digital computer and make them obsolete. And so this is going to touch everyone's lives. Medicine, space travel, energy, all the big issues of the day will be altered because of the introduction of a new type of computer called quantum computers. And we're going to discuss that in the first part of exploration. Well, first of all, let me say that computers have gone through three basic stages in their evolution. In the first stage, we had what are called analog computers. We computed on sticks, strings, uh, levers, pulleys, gears. All sorts of mechanical contraptions were invented in order to keep track of numbers. Well, that, these are called analog computers. And, well, they got as far as making machines that can multiply and add. But then World War II hit. And the Germans were encoding all their secret messages, and the Allies had to intercept these messages and decode it. So they needed to create a new type of computer. A computer not based on gears, levers, and pulleys, but a computer based on electricity. And electricity can have a circuit that is either on or off, on or off. And that's binary. And so these computers went from being analog to being binary digital computers. Computers that compute with electricity using the fact that electric circuits could either be on or off, on or off. Well, today, of course, we are entering the final stages in the evolution of a digital computer. Digital computers obey something called Moore's Law. Moore's Law simply says that computer power doubles on average, doubles every 18 months. Now, we're aware of that at Christmas time. At Christmas time, all the toys are twice as powerful as they were the previous Christmas. That's why you want to buy them. That's what keeps the economy going. Banks, the military, corporations depend upon the fact that every year, computer power becomes cheaper and more powerful. Well... That can't go on forever. You see, transistors get more and more powerful by packing more transistors onto a tiny... So far, our computers are so powerful that we can stack a billion, a billion transistors on a wafer the size of your fingernail. However, sooner or later, transistors become so small, they become near atomic in size. Right now, they're about 20 to 50 atoms across, the smallest transistor. However, in the future, they'll be maybe five atoms across. At that point, the quantum principle takes over. You don't know where the electron is anymore, and the electron leaks out, and the whole thing collapses. In other words, that's the end of Moore's Law. And that could be the end of Silicon Valley. 
That's right. We're saying that Silicon Valley could become the next Rust Belt. Not anytime soon, but already, already we see that Moore's Law is flattening out. Your toys, your appliances, your cell phones are not twice as powerful as they were in the last Christmas time. And so this means that the big powers in China, Russia, the United States, everywhere, are beginning to look at the next generation of computers. Quantum computers. Computers that compute not on electric circuits, but on atoms, the smallest possible unit. We're talking about atomic transistors. Transistors the size of an atom that can perform calculations. So, there's a gold rush now. Different nations of the world are trying to perfect their version of a quantum computer. The Chinese are doing it. They're one of the leaders in this technology using light, light beams. Light beams to carry information. And so, they've taken the lead in using optical frequencies to be the transmission of information at the atomic level. At IBM, Google, in the United States, they're using the more traditional electric circuits. Now, right now, IBM is the front runner, but it is a horse race. All the horses are lined up and they're out of the gate. Right now, it's the Chinese and IBM that are leading the pack, but very close behind, we have Honeywell, we have Microsoft, and we have a slew of other corporations that don't want to be left in the dust. I mean, they're not stupid. They know that if they miss the ball, if they drop the ball, then their competitors will run the ball with them, leaving you in the dust. So then the next question is, what's all the fuss about? And what are the problems? Why can't we field atomic transistors and quantum computers right now? The problem is, these things are so delicate. They're based on atoms. If somebody sneezes, if somebody burps in the other room, there goes your, there goes your calculation. You see, atoms have to vibrate in unison. Otherwise, they can't make a calculation. They have to talk to each other. And if they talk to each other, the slightest disturbance can interrupt that and ruin the calculation. That's the basic problem. The basic problem is that the things are so delicate, you want to make sure that you cool them down to near absolute zero. Now, if you were to visit IBM and visit Google and look at their quantum computers, they are, well, let's be blunt about it, they are monstrosities at the present time. They look like a huge chandelier. And then you say to yourself, well, if this is what a quantum computer looks like, where is the calculations where are they being done? It turns out that most of the chandelier that you see in pictures of quantum computers are actually pictures of the cooling pipes. It takes that much hardware to cool the thing down to near absolute zero. The actual calculation, the actual quantum computer is only a few inches across because we're talking about something, you know, the size of a coin. So, <laughs> so we still have a long ways to go. Well, let's sort of summarize the history of how we got to this point. Well, as we mentioned, computers have gone through three basic stages in their evolution. 
Stage one was analog computers. When computers uh, were based on levers, gears, pulleys, you turned the crank and a calculation was done. The second era was digital computers, uh, initiated during World War II because of the fact that we had to decode the German encrypted messages. And then we used electricity and vacuum tubes to do the calculation. Then we went to transistors and microchips, and now even they are beginning to run out of steam. And we're now entering the third era. The third era is quantum computers that operate at the atomic level. They are huge objects. They'll be miniaturized in the future, of course. But right now, they have to be cooled down, cooled down to very, very low temperatures. Now, something this important is going to have shock waves through, our, through the military, through industry, and through our daily life. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, the military and the CIA, they are very much worried about the rapid progress in quantum computers. They thought it would take maybe hundreds of years to build them. No, we already have quantum computers running in the laboratory now. They're not up to speed yet. That'll take many more years. But yeah, they work and they are quantum computers. And the problem is that they are powerful enough eventually to crack any secret code. This is giving the CIA a heart attack. Think about it. All the crown jewels of information about your, the state of your military, about your intentions, about your goals. All of that is encoded. But quantum computers are so powerful, they can break the code. So already, the U.S. government has issued directives, directives to scientists saying, watch out, quantum computers are coming. They're not ready yet. They're still in the laboratory phase. But when they come, they're going to change everything. Because in principle, you'll be able to break any code. Well, of course, there are ways to get around that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But now let's say something else. Let's talk about what you can use quantum computers for. And what will they look like? And how will you interface with a quantum computer? Well, one thing that you can do with quantum computers is feed the world. You know, the world depends on fertilizers. But fertilizers are very expensive to make. You have to have huge, gigantic plants, and you have to have high temperatures and high pressures in order to make artificial fertilizer. But you see, quantum computers operate at the molecular level. With molecules, we can begin to decipher how is it that Mother Nature can make fertilizers almost for free. Legumes, for example, a kind of vegetable, it makes chemicals that make fertilizer. And so we have to copy Mother Nature. Mother Nature has already perfected the idea of room temperature fertilizer creation. We do it at extremely high pressures, extremely high temperatures. That's how we make fertilizer. So the first green revolution that made possible our, our uh, standard of living was made possible because we understand the chemical process. But now... We want to reduce it down to a computer code. A computer code that will hopefully give us fertilizer at room temperatures. This would give us a second green revolution, allowing us to feed the world. And so there's a lot at stake. But of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Another application is solar power. 
Everyone says, isn't solar power great? It'll save us for global warming. But something's missing. And that is, well, how come solar never got off the ground? Everyone talks about it. But how come we don't have solar power uh, competing neck and neck with oil and coal? Well, they never tell you this. But the problem with solar power is not the sun. The problem with solar power is the battery. We forget that the battery does not obey Moore's law. How do you store the electricity when the sun doesn't shine and the winds don't blow? Well, you're caught. You're caught in a situation where there is energy to be gotten, except our methods are inefficient and wasteful. At night, there's no sunshine, for example, right? And so we need a way to store energy with a super battery. That we don't have yet. Lithium batteries are good, but they're about 1% the potential of an ordinary or ordinary electrolyte battery. In other words, we've got a long ways to go before we can store solar energy in a battery. And this is where quantum computers come in. Quantum computers can do chemistry without chemists. This is called virtual chemistry. Now, of course, to do chemistry, you have to mix tubes. But that's wasteful, mixing chemical after chemical after chemical. How many chemicals do you have to test before you find the right one? You have to test thousands, thousands of different kinds of materials because you have no understanding at the molecular level why certain things work and why certain chemicals don't work. That's where quantum computers come in. Quantum computers can allow you to simulate simulate chemical reactions to tell which chemical reactions will make a super battery. I mean, think about that for a moment. Maybe we don't need chemists anymore. Everything will be done in the memory of a computer. Well, actually, we will still have chemists. You see, in the future, chemists who do not use quantum computers will probably be put out of a job because that's the future. The future is, it's like having a hammer. Very useful, very handy. A carpenter cannot function without a hammer. So who will flourish in the future? Not chemists who work alone. Chemists who use quantum computers will flourish. Same thing with carpenters. Some people think that the hammer will replace the carpenter. No. The carpenter uses the hammer as a tool. <coughs> the tool allows you to enhance your power and your accuracy but it doesn't replace the carpenter. The carpenter is the one who strategizes, has the blueprint, knows what you want, and goes out and uses the hammer. And that's the way that we're gonna use quantum technologies. Some people say that quantum technologies will create unemployment. Well, yeah, people who don't use quantum computers will eventually have to be fired because the people who will take their job are the people who use quantum computers. So quantum computers will be essential for energy, for, for uh, food production, for solar power, and also for medicine. You know that most medicines are based on DNA and molecules. But when we test our, our substances against DNA and against chemicals, how do we do it? In a Petri dish. How many petri dishes do you need? Hundreds of petri dishes. If you visit a pharmaceutical plant, 
you see hundreds of dishes where chemists are experimenting to find, using trial and error, which chemicals can kill which bacteria. I mean, that sounds pathetic, right? But that's because there's no general rule. We have very few general rules that tell us which substances are active against bacteria. For example, one class of antibiotics will destroy the wall of the evading bacteria. Well, that's great because now we can leverage off that and create chemicals that can, that can destroy the wall of bacteria. We do that. But how many more mechanisms are there? Probably hundreds, but we don't know them because we use trial and error. And so the world of medicine could be revolutionized by quantum computers. Also, quantum computers will work with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence allows us to calculate the shape of a protein. Now, you've seen pictures of the coronavirus, right? Why do they call it the coronavirus? Because it looks like the sun with corona discharges, spikes on the surface of the virus. Why does the virus have spikes? These spikes are actually keys, keys that unlock locks on the surface of your cells. That's how viruses enter into your cells and eventually can kill you or send you in the hospital. So how does that work? The coronavirus with spikes uses the spikes to open a gateway, just like a key fitting a, a, a receptacle of the key. The keys can gain entrance to our cells by using the spikes on the coronavirus. That's why a lot of viruses look like spikes. These spikes are actually keys to the kingdom. Well, using quantum computers, we now realize that it's the shape of the virus which makes it so deadly. So with quantum computers, we can graph the shape of these viruses. These viruses are not mysteries. We can draw graphs of the shape of these viruses and then spot the weak points. So this is going to revolutionize the way we approach cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's diseases, and many other diseases because we now know how medicine works. Medicine works mainly by the shape of the pathogen that we're talking about or the mistakes that are made in the functioning of a normal cell. And so the revolution will, will touch medicine as well. Not only that, but this revolution is already in operation. It turns out that in Canada, a company called D-Wave is already selling commercially available quantum computers. Very expensive, they cost a few million bucks. But they're used for optimization and minimization program. If you are a company, you want to maximize profit and uh, minimize waste. So you want a computer program that can adjust all the different parameters, like you know uh, how many did you, how many things did you sell? What are the cost margins? What happens if you buy more of this, more of that? All these technical questions you can't answer except in the memory of a quantum computer. So quantum computers are already being used by banks and companies that want to minimize waste and maximize profit. Also, the aerospace industry is interested in this. They want to make a 
supersonic jet liner with no sonic boom. Remember the Concorde? The Concorde was a beautiful airplane. It was supersonic. I rode in it once. It was amazing. It went right past the speed of sound and you didn't even know it. It was so smooth, the ride in the Concorde, going from New York City to London. But it crashed and the whole thing eventually fell apart because of the sonic boom. Nobody wanted a sonic boom over their neighborhood. And as a consequence, uh, the Concorde did not get rights to fly over the United States. So it was not profitable. And then after the explosion with the Concorde, the whole thing fell apart. Well, looking back, we see that the problem was that the sonic boom, analysis of the sonic boom was done using 1960s technology. I mean, that's a dinosaur era, the 1960s. Now we have supercomputers and quantum computers that can model airflow and allow us to create jets that do not create a sonic boom or a minimal sonic boom. And that is reviving all the talk of a supersonic jetliner. Already, all the major players are asking NASA and the government for permission to field test, field test supersonic jetliners. Can you imagine having breakfast in New York, having lunch in Tokyo, and then having dinner back in New York again? I mean, this is a dream, but it's something that is actually possible. Now, the next question that we want to answer is, how do quantum computers work? How come they are, in principle, millions of times more powerful than an ordinary digital computer? Well, this may surprise you, but the reason why the quantum computer is so powerful, millions of times more powerful than a conventional digital computer, is because they calculate in multiple universes. This is the multiverse. Let's talk about the quantum theory for the moment. The quantum theory says that if I have a cat in a box, <coughs> the cat could be connected to a gun, and the gun could be connected to uranium. Uranium is a quantum event. <coughs> you don't know when the gun fires, but if the gun fires, it shoots the bullet, and the bullet hits the cat, and the cat dies. Everything's in a box. <coughs> so the question is, before you open the box, is the cat dead or alive? Well, according to the quantum principle, you don't really know. The cat is neither dead nor alive until you open the box. But when you open the box, everything collapses, and then you know the cat is either dead or alive. But before you open the box, according to the quantum principle, <coughs> before you open the box, the cat is in a superposition of being dead and alive simultaneously. Now, at this point, you may say to yourself, you physicists are nuts. I mean, this is crazy stuff. This is crazy talk. What? Being dead and alive simultaneously? Well, Einstein hated this idea. Einstein said, well, a cat is either dead or alive, not the sum of being alive and dead at the same time. But, well, what can I say? Einstein was wrong. That's why we have transistors. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have the internet. That's why we have GPS. That's why we have all the wonders of modern technology that drives the economy. 
We're surrounded by quantum mechanics, but they all calculate in multiple universes. And now we're going to quantum computers, which are pure quantum, that we remove all the digital, because the digital aspect it gives you, it slows you down, is pure quantum mechanical now. Now, this means that, well, get used to it. We live in a multiverse of universes. Now, you've probably seen Spider-Man movies and Thor and Doctor Strange and the Oscars, all of them dominated by the multiverse. Well, of course, that's science fiction. Hollywood realized that in the old days, they could make a lot of money going on rocket ships to other planets. But hey, we have rocket ships. We've done that. We've been there. Ho-hum. Now Hollywood is looking for a different angle to amaze the audience, and they're looking at quantum physics. Well, believe it or not, this is a problem we give our grad students getting their PhD. Calculate the probability that you'll wake up on Mars tomorrow. Now, you may say to yourself, well, you physicists are nuts. You guys are crazy. You guys have gotten off the deep end. Calculate the probability that you could wake up on Mars tomorrow? I mean, come on, give me a break, right? Well, it's calculable. Using quantum mechanics and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you can calculate the probability that you'll be on Mars tomorrow. Now, when you do the calculation, it turns out you would have to wait probably longer than the lifetime of the universe to do that. So don't expect to wake up on Mars tomorrow. But at the electron level, at the level of subatomic particles, these transitions are commonplace. Commonplace. Electrons dance and are in multiple positions at the same time. And what is that called? That's called the transistor. That's called the laser. That's called the GPS. That's called the internet. The, all of them are based on the fact that the electron can be in multiple places at the same time. And that's the origin of the power of quantum computers. For example, let's put a mouse in a maze. A digital computer would have to calculate the probability of a mouse going to the left or to the right at each juncture. How many junctures are there? Many, many junctures. How many paths? Oh, uh, dozens of different paths. So to calculate the probability that a mouse will go through a maze is rather complicated. But note, quantum computers do the whole calculation simultaneously. They look at all possible paths simultaneously and instantly calculates the probability that you're going to go through the maze. That's the power of quantum computers. And as I mentioned, quantum computers will be in your life. It's going to affect you because it'll affect the, it'll affect the economy, it'll affect medicine, it'll affect space travel. Almost every aspect of our life is going to be turned upside down by quantum computers. So get a copy of my book, Quantum Supremacy. So we're talking about a new era in quantum physics with quantum computers. The book is Quantum Supremacy. By 2020 or so, we will gradually begin to exhaust the power of silicon because transistors will be so tiny that electrons will leak out of the silicon chip. And we need a replacement, and quantum computers may be it. 
However, even the CIA is interested in quantum computers. They are, in principle, so powerful that they could crack any computer code, and you'll be able to eavesdrop on any conversation via a quantum computer. And Dr. Seth Lloyd also entertains the possibility that maybe the universe itself is one gigantic quantum computer. So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Seth Lloyd of MIT, and we're talking about the world beyond 2020, what happens when Silicon Valley becomes a rust belt, and we have to go to quantum computers. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT, author of a new controversial book called Programming the Universe. And the question is, is the universe a quantum computer? Now, let me explain. We all know that computers that energize modern society are based on silicon. And the silicon chip that you have in your Pentium crams literally millions upon millions of tiny transistors into something that's a little bit bigger than your thumbnail. And the question is, how far can you go until the tiniest transistor becomes the size of an atom? Well, that time is coming. Perhaps in 20, 30 years, we don't know precisely when, but we do know that someday transistors will be so tiny that atoms of silicon simply won't do will have to go to atomic computers, otherwise known as quantum computers. And Professor Lloyd is an expert in this area called quantum computation. And he thinks maybe even the universe is a quantum computer. Now, let me also note that atoms spin like a spinning top. And you all know that spinning tops have an arrow, the axis of spin. That could point up or down. If it points up, that's a zero. If it points down, that's a 1, and you get binary. But atoms are more than just binary. Atoms can also point sideways and anywhere in between, a superposition of up and down. And that's where we get into the bizarre world of the quantum theory, where you don't really know quite where this arrow is pointing, but you have much more freedom than simply zeros and ones. You have zeros and ones and in between. These are called qubits, or quantum bits. And Dr. Seth Lloyd is one of the world's experts in this new area. And of course, many people are interested in this. Modern technocrats are interested because one day quantum computers may have the internet on it, and as well as banking records and your credit card records, not to mention the fact that the CIA wants to get their handle on quantum computers because with it, you can crack any code with a quantum computer. But you see, Dr. Lloyd goes even farther than that because you see, everything around us is governed by atoms. Atoms, in turn, obey quantum mechanics, and therefore he claims that the universe, the universe is one gigantic quantum computer. And if that's true, then what is it computing? What's the program? Who wrote the software? God? I mean, your mind starts to go crazy thinking about the possibility that maybe the universe is a quantum computer. 
So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Seth Lloyd, author of the new book, Programming the Universe. Professor Lloyd, tell us a little bit about your youth. Uh, were there any kinds of incidences or stories you'd like to tell about what set you off in a career in mathematics, computational physics, and physics? Well, I always loved fooling around with numbers and with games and things involving geometry when I was a kid. I played a lot with blocks and would build huge geometric constructions as well as buildings with them. Uh, and then when I went to school, um, I was amazed to find out that there was a subject called physics where with relatively simple math, you could discover a huge amount about the way the world works. Of course, then I went to graduate school and found it was really the opposite. There's a huge amount of complicated math, and you only understand a little tiny bit about the way the world works. But by then, it was too late. I was, I was uh, suckered into the field. And you also mentioned in your book that as a graduate student, everyone seemed to be doing string theory, but you saw your destiny going in a slightly different direction. Uh, could you elaborate? Sure. When I, um, uh, uh, when I was at Cambridge University, I did an uh, uh, MPhil in history and philosophy of science and started working on ideas of information and quantum mechanics. I also studied um, quantum gravity uh, with Stephen Hawking. And uh, I, it struck me that there was a connection between these uh, two things, these two ideas of quantum information and quantum gravity. Um, so uh, when I went to Rockefeller University, uh, to work with Heinz Pekels to um, do a PhD in physics, I uh, started off working on ideas of uh, quantum information and quantum gravity, basically the same thing that I'm doing today. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't like that very much at Rockefeller University, and about halfway through they told me I better cut it out and work on something more conventional like elementary particle physics or string theory. Well, I guess reality intrudes. <laughs> um, and I, Heinz Pagels, I should also mention, was one of the early guests on exploration, uh, speaking about elementary particle physics. Uh, now let's talk about uh, things that are very practical. Uh, the average American, of course, says, what's in it for me? Numero uno. Am I going to get uh, better Internet reception? Uh, am I going to get uh, better uh, computer power? So let's talk about computer power, computer games, and what we have for Christmas. Everybody knows that at Christmas time, your computer is almost twice as powerful as the computers of the previous Christmas, and that's called Moore's Law. So some people say, well, Moore's Law is going to go on forever. However, you think otherwise. So tell us a little bit about Moore's Law and why you think Moore's Law is going to break down. So by Christmas time, we're not going to get Christmas presents that are almost twice as powerful as the previous Christmas. Well, uh, uh, it's dangerous to predict that Moore's Law will break down. People have been predicting its imminent demise for decades, starting in the uh, uh, late 1960s. And every time some clever engineer managed to find a way around whatever specific problem seemed to be standing in the way of progress. Um, and in fact, if you look at Moore's Law, it's not just one technology that has made computers uh, get more powerful by a factor of two every year and a half or so. Um, it's a whole series of technologies that have kicked in, from vacuum tubes to transistors to integrated circuits. And these technologies rely on uh, uh, the improvement, the rapid improvement of other kinds of methods like machining, material science, etc. So Moore's Law is kind of the, the tip of the iceberg of this rapid improvement. 
However, uh, it can't actually go on forever uh, for a simple reason, that is that computers are governed by the laws of physics. And the laws of physics tell you how small you can make things and how fast you can do things. And um, uh, so if you actually took all the energy in the universe and turned it into a gigantic computer, uh, a possibility in, envisaged by uh, Isaac Asimov in his story, The Last Question, um, I was able to calculate using the physics of information processing how big such a computer would be. And, uh, well, uh, this computer, this universal computer, if you like, up till now it could have performed about 10 to the 120 op elementary operations or ops on about 10 to the 90 bits. And if you actually look at the exponential progress of Moore's law and ask when, at what point, could the whole universe become a computer, it's only 250 or 400 years away. So even if we manage to take every elementary particle in the universe and turn it into, uh, uh, have it participate in a computation, then Moore's law couldn't last for more than a, a few more centuries. Okay, well, let's be very practical. Uh, on your uh, desk is a laptop with a Pentium chip, let's say, and that Pentium chip has a layer, a layer of chemicals, uh, the smallest layer being 20 atoms across, 20 atoms across, the smallest layer in a Pentium chip on your desk. In 20 years, in fact, less than 20 years, that layer will be five atoms across at the rate at which we're going, five atoms across. And at five atoms, we have to introduce something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, which says you don't really know precisely where that electron is. In which case, if electrons leak out of the layer, your Pentium chip just short-circuited, and your laptop is now useless. And so the question is, how small can you make a transistor before you bump up against atoms, and at the atomic level, everything's uncertain? Yeah, well, that certainly is something to worry about. And indeed, if uh, Intel starts making chips where the electrons are just leaking out all over the place, the chips wouldn't work. So they clearly can't make them by exactly the same design. Um, however, it's certainly there's certainly nothing wrong with um, or nothing against the laws of physics to actually store bits of information at the atomic scale. Indeed, one atom, one bit. Um, and as uh, the components of computers get smaller, indeed, quantum effects like the Heisenberg uncertainty kick in. But um, maybe we can actually uh, uh, take advantage of these effects like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Maybe we can turn it from being a bug into a feature. And indeed, that's what my colleagues and I do when we try to build computers whose uh, feature scale, the size of the bits, are down at the level of individual atoms. Okay, now let's talk again very practical things when people say, what's in it for me? Well, the government, of course, would ask the same question, what's in it for us? And let's not talk about the CIA. The CIA, of course, is very much interested in breaking codes. Uh, they love to break the codes of other nations. But many times to break a code, you have to have a key. And sometimes this key is a, uh, the, the ability to factorize a huge number Let's say I have a number with 100 digits. Take a sheet of paper and write a random set of integers 100 digits long. would fill up many, many sheets of paper. And then you're asked to factorize it as the product of two numbers. Well, how would you do that? Uh, it would exhaust most computers. And some people, therefore, think that certain codes are safe, that it's beyond the ability of most ordinary computers to crack 
uh, the factorization of a number that's 100 digits long. But now let's talk about computing on atoms. Is it possible that this new generation of computers, this quantum computers that you are pioneering, could be able to crack codes that even the CIA cannot crack? Well, it's, it's possible. And indeed, uh, uh, if we could build a quantum computer, a computer that stored bits of information on individual atoms, one with only a few uh, uh, tens of thousands of quantum bits and one able to perform a few hundred million operations, which is to say something quite piddling compared with the laptop on my lap right now. Um, if we could build a very small quantum computer, then we could use these kind of weird features like the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle to compute in a different way. And indeed, uh, uh, in 1994, uh, Peter Shore, uh, then at AT&T, now at MIT, showed that, in fact, you could exploit quantum weirdness to factor large numbers and break these codes with even a rather small quantum computer. Okay, now let's talk about uh, computers themselves. Everyone talks about the digital age. Everything is digital. But what does digital mean, and what is this zeros and ones, zeros and ones that sometimes we see in the press? And uh, like if you saw the movie The Matrix, you saw a bunch of zeros and ones, zeros and ones. What are these zeros and ones, and what is the so-called digital age? So uh, 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 a zero or one is what's called a bit. Uh, a bit is the, the smallest possible chunk of information. And it doesn't have to be zero and one. Some famous bits are yes or no, heads or tails, true or false, uh, black or white. Essentially, any, um, any uh, thing that can take on two different states, two different distinguishable states, registers a bit. And that's the smallest chunk of information. And the way that digital computers work is they break up information into bits, into its smallest chunks, and then process it that way. Okay, so if modern society, the wealth of nations, uh, everything we see around us, if it's governed by zeros and ones, then let's now talk about qubits, uh, quantum bits, where atoms don't have to be in zeros and one states. They could be zeros and ones and in between. So tell us about, about how atoms can be in between zero and one. Yeah, so, so well, as soon as one starts talking about quantum mechanics, then uh, things start to get weird. Uh, you know, Niels Bohr famously said that anyone who can contemplate quantum mechanics without getting dizzy hasn't properly understood it. Um, but uh, let's go on anyway. Back essentially a little more than 100 years ago, um, uh, physicists, including Max Planck, Einstein, Niels Bohr, and others, realized that there was an essential chunkiness to nature, a kind of a, a digital quality, that things that people thought of as being wave-like, like, for instance, light or sound, came in little chunks. Light came in little chunks called photons, a little particle of light. Sound came in little chunks called phonons, a little particle of sound. And so at this quantum level, things that look continuous actually are somewhat digital. For instance, you could have no photons in a spot or one photon in a spot. Or you could have one electron over here or one electron over there. And indeed, that's how a conventional computer registers bits, though with a lot more electrons. So, you know, bucket empty, lots of electrons out, electrons out of the bucket, that's zero. Bucket full, lots of electrons in the bucket, that's one. Now, in quantum mechanics, so quantum mechanics says, the, at the bottom of the world has this digital feature. 
um, which is good because that means we can use this digital nature of the world, this quantum nature, to store digital information. But there's another weird feature of quantum mechanics that goes under the name wave-particle duality. So just as waves like light are made up of particles, so things like particles, like electrons, for instance, have waves associated with them. The wave is uh, an electron's wave uh, tells you something about where the electron is. Now, so in a digital world, a, an ordinary bit, you could either have an electron here, that's zero, or there, that's one. But in the quantum world, the electron's wave can be both here and there at the same time. So a quantum bit, electron here and there at the same time, is a bit that can register in some funky quantum sense that nobody really understands, zero and one at the same time. Qubits are not either zero or one. They can be zero and one. Okay, so let's take an analogy of a top, a spinning top. Everyone's played with them as children, and atoms spin, and therefore atoms are also like spinning tops, and atoms can spin either up or down when they're placed in a magnetic field, or at least until the quantum theory came in. And so now we can have tops that spin up, tops that spin down, and tops that spin in between. Now, these qubits, these quantum bits, can be between 0 and 1, and they consist of atoms now, not molecules of silicon that you see on, on a transistor. So how would you actually now build a quantum computer. Let's say that you were an inventor, have access to laser beams and magnetic fields and the ability to play with atoms, individual atoms. How would you build a quantum computer? So um, uh, uh, I guess, in fact, uh, a little more than 10 years ago, I was in that position because um, quantum computers, the idea you could compute at the level of atoms using quantum mechanics, have been proposed by Paul Benioff and Richard Feynman back in the 1980s. But uh, uh, until by the early 1990s, nobody knew how to build one. Nobody had a clue. And uh, around 1992, 1993, I realized that with off-the-shelf elements like lasers and microwave generators, you could take atoms and make them compute. And the way the uh, type of computing I suggested was, in fact, just what you suggested. We'll take spin as our bit. So spinning up, or we can call that uh, clockwise, is uh, a zero, and spinning down is a one, and then spinning sideways is this funky state of a qubit, zero and one at the same time. So now, uh, uh, if you take such an atom, uh, the spin of the nucleus of an atom, you put the atom in a magnetic field, and then you zap it with microwaves, you can make that bit flip. This is called uh, uh, magnetic resonance. Um, it's the same technique that you uh, use to image your knee when you blow it out while skiing. Um, so if you put on light or microwaves at just the right frequency, it will tickle the nucleus and cause the nucleus to flip. First, it will start at, let's say, it starts at the state zero or spin up, and then it gradually rotates down through the state spin sideways, zero and one at the same time, to the state spin down or one. Now, if you have lots of atoms, lots of nuclei, you can address them with different frequencies. You can think, in fact, of these different atoms as essentially listening to different radio stations. So, you know, if I have one atom that listens to um, uh, 89.7 megahertz, WGBH here in Boston, then uh, a second one, say the first one is carbon, say the second one is hydrogen, will listen to WCRB. 
102.5. So, um, and when I address these two atoms with microwaves of different frequencies, or radio waves of different frequencies, then if I shine light at 89.7, the carbon atom, which listens to 89.7, will flip. And if I shine light or microwaves at 102.5, then the hydrogen atom, which listens to WCRB, will flip. So I can address atoms individually. And then if you're sensitive to the interaction between the atoms, you can massage those interactions to make up uh, uh, logical operations. For instance, causing the hydrogen atom to flip if and only if the carbon atom is spin down or one. And since at bottom of computation is nothing more than making atoms, sorry, making bits flip and making one bit flip if another bit or another or several other bits say read one, then any computation can be broken down into these simple operations, making bits flip, making them interact with each other. And the atoms in our molecule, the carbon and the hydrogen, can perform a simple computation simply by addressing them with light. Okay, so let's back up a bit. You have a bunch of atoms, let's say in a line, Mm -hmm. and you place it in a magnetic field, so the spins are either up or down, or perhaps sideways, a mixture of up and down. And once you have these atoms aligned, then you hit it with uh, microwaves, and at certain frequencies, uh, the atom will absorb the radiation and flip. That's right. And each flipping process represents a calculation. Now, because the atom is neither up nor down, but it's a mixture of up and down, you have much more flexibility than in zeros and ones. Okay? Now, then the question is, what kind of computation can you perform on this? Can you do the calculations of a laptop? Can you do 1 plus 1 is 2? What's the world's record for computing on these atoms? So you can certainly take uh, uh, these atoms and make them do anything uh, that an ordinary digital computer could do. So at the moment, um, because atoms are very small, uh, and even if you extrapolate Moore's Law into the future, depending on how you, um, you uh, uh, calculate size, um, then you, it will take 25 to 40 years to, for us to get computers where the components are atomic, even if Moore's Law continues at its current breakneck pace. But the quantum computers we've built can do anything that a quantum computer, that an ordinary computer, say, with 7 to 10 bits can do, because that's the size of the computers we're looking at right now. However, um, so as, as viewed as classical computers, just doing ordinary operations like 1 plus 1 equals 2, then they're, they're pretty weak, these quantum computers. Not only are they small in actual size, you know, the size of uh, a few uh, of a small molecule, but they're um, small in terms of power. However, if we start to take advantage of the, abil- the ability of atoms to read zero and one at the same time, then quantum computers can do things that classical computers can't. And, and the, the secret comes from looking at what bits can do in a computer. So bits can store data, uh, uh, but they also can be instructions. So zero can mean do this, right? And one is an instruction meaning do that. Now, if I take a quantum bit, a qubit, that reads zero and one at the same time, and I feed it into a quantum computer as an instruction, then the quantum computer will do this, and it will do that at the same time. So 
quantum computers can multitask or do parallel computation in a way that classical computers can't. And that's why if we could build a quantum computer, say, with a few tens of thousands of, of quantum bits, which seems uh, which is, you know, difficult, but certainly not impossible, then uh, we might be able to start striking fear into the hearts of the CIA, the NSA, and other three-letter agencies. Now, the reality, and correct me if I'm wrong, the reality is that the world's record for a quantum computation is, da-da, drumbeat, 3 times 5 equals 15. And I understand that that calculation was done on something like 5 to 7 atoms. So correct me if I'm wrong, but at the present time, uh, we're still at doing calculations that even children can do. Tiny steps for tiny bits, Mitchell. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you've got to start from somewhere. And, uh, and indeed, um, as you pointed out, uh, the whole notion that quantum effects might come into play strikes fear into the heart of Intel. So we have to figure out how to make atoms compute. And before we start to make uh, Avogadro's number of atoms compute. So, um, uh, you know, starting about uh, six or seven years ago, we started to do the first quantum computations, and we've been gradually making them bigger. Um, it, it takes a, a tough engineer to handle a tender atom. Uh, uh, atoms are small and sensitive, and um, as I say, we're not even due to make atomic-scale computers for another 25 to 40 years by Moore's law. So it's hard to do. But we do have some progress. For instance, if we're not looking at general-purpose computation, like you know, multiplying 3 times 5 to get uh, 15, uh, uh, if we look at special-purpose computations, like uh, trying to simulate other quantum systems, then Feynman pointed out um, in the early 1980s that quantum computers might be very good at that. And indeed, we've built special-purpose quantum computers that contain more bits than any classical computer on Earth, a billion billion bits. And we've used these to simulate effects like quantum chaos uh, or the behavior of uh, uh, electrons hopping around in, um, in side metals uh, that you could never, ever do even with the world's largest supercomputer. So, you know, our computers are small. Uh, for uh, <laughs> We're only factoring very small numbers right now, so I think the CIA can rest in peace for a decade or two. But uh, we can still do some things that um, uh, even the largest classical, classical supercomputers can't do. Well, that concludes our interview with Professor Seth Lloyd of MIT, which was actually recorded several years ago. Well, in those several years, there's been enormous exponential progress in quantum computers. Now we have quantum computers that are millions of times more powerful than a digital computer for certain tasks. We have a horse race between the Chinese and also the scientists at IBM and Google and Microsoft. It's a horse race to see who can attain quantum supremacy. That is the time when quantum computers can outdo anything done by an ordinary digital computer. Now, we should point out that, well, quantum computers are not yet in the marketplace, except for D-Wave quantum computers, which are very specific to minimization and maximization programs. But an all-purpose, an all-purpose quantum computer is still on the drawing board. It may take years before we can market that, but when that happens, watch out. It could revolutionize our understanding of medicine, chemistry, 
climatology, energy, space travel, the universe, you name it, quantum computers will be there. And again, this is a technology that is still in its infancy. In fact, my book, Quantum Supremacy, is the first popular book on the subject. There have been other books on quantum computers, but they're all written by people in the field. And it's equations from beginning to end. Well, there are no equations in my book. The book is at the level that the average person can pick up, even if they have no experience with computers. And so once again, the book is called Quantum Supremacy, and it talks about the time when quantum computers will change everything.